Thank you everyone for joining. My name is Ambika Sharma. You're listening to the 27th episode of the FinTech Cafe. So we started about 27 weeks ago. Thank you for all the support in getting us this far. Today, I'm excited. We have our very first female founder. Took us a while, but we found you, Laura. Thank you for making the time. So yes, let's do a quick round of intros. I'll start and Manisha, I'll hand it over to you and then we can do our announcements if you like. So uh, over to you, Manisha, for your introduction. Thank you, Ambika. Hello, everyone. For those of you uh, already, it feels like I know most of you here are joining, but Monisha here, part of the financial services industry space, focused on deposits in a large bank in the Midwest. And I'm Laura Speakerman. I'm a co-founder and chief revenue officer at Alloy, which um, we'll be talking about, but is an API uh, platform to help the regulative financial services industry make better identity decisions. Great, thank you. So today we'll have a conversation with Laura and the top, the format is the same. The first 30 minutes we'll do a moderated session. So Manisha and I will ask questions from Laura. And in the second 30 minutes at around 5.30 Pacific, we will open it up to the audience. At that point, you can come up and ask questions. So one notice, we are recording today's call. If you have any objections, please drop now. And because we are recording, we will make these audio recordings available on our website on fintechcafe.org, but also on all podcasting platforms. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can look up Fintech Cafe and you can also catch these conversations there. So with that, Laura, I want to ask you our first question, and that is, you studied political science. That was one of my majors as well. So how do you go from political science to identity management? Tell us more about your path. Yeah, you don't. You mean it's not totally obvious how you, how you make that <laughs> jump? I, I did study political science. I studied actually p- political science and human rights. And as part of that, I did that at Barnard College in New York. And my junior year, I studied abroad in Senegal in West Africa. And I, I ended up getting very interested there in microfinance. And I ended up writing my senior thesis about microfinance. And so it, it was kind of years later when I decided um, I wasn't going to go to law school. I'd been on kind of the law school track and decided not to go. That I was had to think back, like, what did I like doing? What what sort of things did I enjoy? I didn't know what jobs existed. I had no clue what was out there. And so I said, you know, I really liked studying microfinance. And, and several years later, cell phones seemed to be ubiquitous. And so I was really interested in finding that kind of intersection of, at the time, mobile phones and microfinance. And I joined... These two guys had started a software platform in Kenya. At the time, they were, they were moving from Seattle to Kenya called Copo Copo. And I joined them in Kenya to help bring basically what, what has existed. I'm sure folks on this on this call know M-Pesa. It's sort of the telco version of Venmo that's existed for a long time in Kenya. Even back in 2011, I think 75% of adult Kenyans used it to transfer money. So they were building a software platform to allow merchants to sit on top of it, and including my microfinance institutions. And so I just became enamored with financial services distribution through mobile phones, and then especially enamored with infrastructure. And as I went on, I, I switched jobs. I joined an impact investing firm, but I looked at a lot of fintech stuff there. I, I ended up sort of over the years realized that, I guess, two things. One, infrastructure was critical and could sort of make or break the ability to deliver the next generation of financial services. But also, two, that that mobile phones had really changed the game from a distribution perspective around 
you know, kind of the emerging markets and, and other places, including the United States, actually. But the distribution was just part of it. Identity was actually a really critical piece. So you could give phones to anyone in the world, but if they couldn't meet requirements for actually using that, so meet certain KYC requirements or central bank requirements, they weren't going to be able to transact. And so I, I did, I ended up becoming pretty focused on identity and of course still am. So how did you meet your co-founders, Tommy and Charles? I met them when I was, I was leaving that impact investing firm and I was, I really wanted to go back to an operating role at a very early stage payments company. So I was sort of trying to recreate my, my previous fintech experience. I found Tommy, he had done some sort of, I mean, I literally just like found him online. I think he had done some sort of presentation, a startup festival. And I thought he, at the time that the company that he was working at, where I ended up working was an ACH payments company that was trying to make instant ACH by risk rating bank accounts. And I thought that was brilliant. It was sort of combining all the things I thought were really interesting. And so I joined him. I think I was employee number four or five there. Charles, my co-founder and CTO, joined us shortly after that. And it was not particularly long-lived. There were a lot of things kind of screwed up about that company that we discovered, but it did let us realize that we loved working together. We wanted to continue working together. We realized that we really wanted to focus on identity as sort of this core building block in financial services for kind of the next generation of developers and product people in fintech. Got it. Nice. So how did you guys, the three of you, come up with the idea of Alloy? Or what were what were your early days? What was the mission? Has it changed? Yeah. So the previous company, we, we actually wanted to become a customer of something like this. We looked around the market for it and we, we realized, you know, we were seeing conversion issues, fraud issues, et cetera, that our clients were seeing drop off because they couldn't totally validate someone's identity, end user's identity. So someone was trying to sign up for a wallet, a crypto account, a, you know, brokerage account, a deposit account, whatever it was, and something like their name would be validated. Their address probably was right, but because one of the big credit bureaus or the big public records agency didn't find the address, maybe because they'd moved in the last couple of years and they're certainly not real time, they're far from it, you couldn't validate them. You'd have to send them to a manual review process. You're asking that user to you know, call to a call center, fax and documents or whatever, and, and it just results in you know, huge drop-off or terrible customer experience or both. Or, or your choice is be lenient and risk fraud and risk compliance issues. And so we were trying to become customers of something that would solve our problem we looked around, there was nothing in the market. And it was around when, this was 2015, so it was around when Plaid was coming out, Stripe existed. And so we were starting to see these APIs as kind of building blocks in financial services. And we said, this should be this should be one. So our kind of vision is to create a more dynamic and accessible financial industry. And we do that by helping financial companies deploy safe and seamless digital customer experiences by using our tools. Nice. So you were just solving your own problems. You were on your own customers. I like that. Yes, exactly. We wanted to be our own customers. We had to go build it ourselves first. And we still are doing that six years later. So in the beginning, you were in stealth mode for a while. And uh, I guess it took a long time. So could you talk to us Talk to us about the early days? What were some of the struggles that you faced? Yeah, it was a pretty rough first four years. And if you had told me it would have taken gosh, I think four and a half or almost five years to get to a series A. I just never would have signed up for this. I'm very glad I'm doing it now, but I, it was a rough, rough first few years. So we 
got started. We raised a little bit of money. We had no idea what it took really to build a bank ready product at the time. So this is 2015. We had to quickly come up to speed about going through audits, data security, compliance requirements, all sorts of stuff that, you know, we, we it was sort of trial by fire and figuring it out as we go. And we would, over the first three, four years, periodically almost run out of money, kind of get saved at a few points. But but we did see enough signals from the customers we did have, which were a mix of early stage fintech companies and community banks who were really active in digital. So either they were starting to partner with fintech companies, that was kind of the early days of like Radius Bank, for example, this is 2016, 2017, they, they became really active and one of the first banks to do that. Or banks who were launching their own digital channels like Midwest Bank Center, an early Alloy client. So a couple of these were just really sort of formative for us where we learned a ton, we built a ton of stuff for them. They were great partners. And we were realizing like that just from the feedback that we were getting, like just how deeply they loved and needed this product, that we had something there. We just couldn't figure out how to how to sort of make it work as a as a business yet. And I think the answer was like we we had to kind of hang on enough until uh, we could kind of get through, get get initial product market fit, get a few customers, but it's just very expensive to get those first few customers because the product build is so intense. And so we should have raised more money than we did. But finally, kind of, we, we got there, we got enough validation, got enough points on the board. And then we also, the market really changed in like 2018 or so, maybe 2019, where banking as a service and embedded fintech became a thing. I mean, I never could have anticipated this, to be honest, but it changed things for us because suddenly there was, you know, there were new products and new companies being kind of sprung up every day. Now the rate at which we're seeing them is even crazier, but it really did validate the idea that if, if these building blocks are there, the ability for new products to emerge just becomes, you know, pretty incredible. So finally in 20. Yeah, I guess in 2019 is when we really hit our stride and we're finally able to raise a Series A. Great. And so, Laura, uh, fast forwarding to 2021, October 2021, specifically, you've uh, raised your Series C of 100 million Mm -hmm. with a valuation of uh, 1.35 billion. Congratulations. That's a great success story. Hopefully you've uh, had the chance to take a breather. Kind of trying to understand a little more about where you are today. You operate in the space of a digital identity. Could you kind of help us understand this area better? What are some of the market opportunities that lie here? Yeah, so it's really like every every cust every institution that is providing some sort of financial service, whether that's moving money, opening accounts. And here we're, we're talking really about consumer and small business facing applications, but that stack gets pretty deep because you can also talk about banking as a service providers and all sorts of folks in between. But really anyone where, where kind of money is being moved is is pretty highly regulated. And we we view identity as just a core sort of barrier if you don't get it right. For the reasons I described earlier, it can be it can lead to conversion issues, fraud issues, or sort of this this kind of inherent tension that exists between having a good business, meaning onboarding a lot of customers, giving them a really good experience, and then being safe, which is being safe from a compliance perspective, also being safe from a fraud perspective. We believe we, we just want to remove that tension. And so sometimes that can be very literal, right? Sitting between stakeholders at a, at a bank or a fintech company and sort of having these conversations about how they might be able to innovate, but make everyone happy. 
And sometimes it's really just more theoretical about what kinds of project projects they can launch, where their budget goes, et cetera. But we really view ourselves at kind of that the crux there. And so we're, we insert ourselves into account opening flows in particular. Our onboarding product is what's been around the longest. That's where our clients integrate our API. And so when an applicant is coming to their page and saying, entering like name, address, phone number, date of birth, all that kind of stuff, hitting submit, that's getting sent to our API. We're running a bunch of requests for data to validate that data. And we're doing that based on pre-configured workflows that our client has said, yes, this meets my regulatory compliance, fraud, risk tolerance, sort of, they they get to pre-configure all these workflows that then execute in real time. And we come back in milliseconds with a response that says, yep, onboard this customer. They look good according to your rules. No, they don't look good or send them to manual review. We don't know. And so by virtue of having a ton of dynamic rules that you can test and, and modify in seconds, you can add in new data sources. So our clients use tons of data sources. We have about 85 plus that we integrate into our API. You get to really easily improve and kind of optimize your workflows over time to get the best possible outcomes. So that's our core product. We have a couple other products, but but I'll stop there. Great, thanks. And then it kind of trying to understand your customers, it sounded like it took a while to get the critical mass. Uh, so who are some of your early customers and what are what is your current sort of customer profile? Yeah. So early customers were were kind of early stage fintech companies some that, that are growth stage now, but we're in early this time we started. So companies like Brex and, and Marketa, for example, um, we, and again, kind of consumer facing or can have, or, or SMB facing companies um, or like Marketa sort of be, you know, more banking as a service oriented or, or issuer processor type of companies. And then a bunch of community banks were our early customers. So uh, again, banks like Radius Bank, now, now Lending Club, of course, MBC, gosh, a ton of other ones, kind of, you know, one to 5 billion in assets, really, really good at fintech and and either partnering with fintech companies or launching their own digital products. Over time that, that expanded to work with large financial institutions like Ally Bank, for example, and, and some other kind of, you know, a hundred billion plus dollar asset size banks. And then similarly working with more scaled fintech companies, but it's a huge range. It's about 50-50 banks and fintech companies. It, it kind of varies, of course, week to week, but we we serve both pretty equally. Great. Thank you. And then on the product offering side, you started uh, touching on that, but how does that fit in with your customers? Yeah. Yeah. So onboarding is where we've been focused you know, to date, and that's really been onboarding consumers or small businesses to banking platforms. On the bank side, we've largely done that through account opening vendors. So work, you know, integrating instead of in- integrating to your core, we integrate into account opening platforms. We work really closely with a number of those. The products we've launched this year. So one we recently launched was transaction monitoring, and that was it's very conceptually similar to it was sort of to our core product, writing rules, executing them in real time, or making decisions in real time. And so the idea is to flag or, or action on high risk events or transactions. So that could be someone's moving, making a $5,000 wire transfer to Russia. You want sort of an immediate decision or, or flag on whether or not we think that's a good transaction. And, and similarly, someone's going in to modify the email address on their bank account profile, a pretty high risk activity. We want to know that that's an okay thing to, to do. And so 
they use our transaction monitoring tool to take in the information they learned at onboarding. So all the information we gathered from third-party data sources during the onboarding process. Then we also bring in all the transaction history. So what is you what have you been doing in these you know 90 days you've been a customer? What does your transaction history like look like? And we get that either via batch or API from a processor. And then also kind of moment in time characteristics, like what device are you on? And we help you make those decisions. And then today we launched credit decisioning. So we we're now again very conceptually similar to onboarding and usually most it's part of onboarding for lots of lots of people where we are making credit decisions or we are not making we, we are enabling our clients to make credit decision credit decisions using our our API and so we integrate a bunch of different very data providers for credit so credit bureaus alternative data all that stuff and we allow our clients to write a bunch of you know, rules very easily. It's super dynamic. They can bring in attributes from out-of-the-box credit bureau integrations. They can have their own custom models, all sorts of stuff. And we we execute those decisions. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the launch today. Exciting to talk to you and our product Thank launch. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad we found time with you, actually. I'm sure it's a pretty busy day. And along the lines of product, how do you approach product innovation? Like, how do you create that iterative process around product? Yeah, it's a good question. So I have like a, basically the answer is we don't know yet. We're, we still approach it from a, well, I'll I'll tell you how we actually do it, which is sort of ridiculous, but our CEO is actually, he's our head of product and he is obsessed with our customers. And so he is constantly talking to them big customers, small customers. I don't know that he even knows how much they pay us. I don't think it matters to him. He's just super excited about understanding our clients and their their next pain points. And so he's constantly thinking about solving their problems. And he's thinking about when they say this one thing over here is a problem, he's trying to understand what do they actually need as a solution? You know, how do we, how do we deliver that solution? Where would it integrate? So he he's sort of just obsessed in this way that actually is is our product innovation process and that's been fantastic i mean obviously not great on his calendar and his time but but fantastic for us because he just stays super close to 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 the use cases and understanding exactly what we should be building and and fixing but the second thing we've done is create new product squads if you will so we have we have product squads that that have been delivering working on delivering the new products i just described And then we also have a new product go-to-market squad led by Charlie Ma, who was the early growth employee at at Plaid. And so he's been working where we take these products and they might be kind of like half-baked or, or, you know, three-quarters of the way baked. And he puts uh, a team together, kind of cross-functional, you know, marketing, sales, client success, integrations. And, and tries to get sort of really iterative feedback, figure out how the best ways are to integrate, price it, you know, develop customer success kind of materials for all that stuff. And so that's that's been our more recent organizational attempt to get that sort of product market fit right on new products. But really, TBD, we're going to have to keep iterating as So Laura, on that, regarding your go-to-market strategy, have you seen any difference because of the virtual setting nowadays, uh, because of the pandemic? How do you do go to market uh, for a new product launch? Question. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best. So one, you know, we, we are, we're, we're very customer focused, I would say. So a lot of it is going out to our customers and, and trying to understand their feedback. And, and fortunately, a lot of them we got to know pre-pandemic, but a lot of them, a lot of them we didn't. 
and so it's it's you know largely done just as as good and fast and and as authentically I guess as we can over Zoom. Although fortunately, I will say we're going to Money 2020 next week, and so we will get to be in person for a little bit with our clients and partners and prospects, which I'm very excited. Right. I was going to say, as I was asking the question, doing product launches on a virtual platform, given that Money 2020 is next week, so I'm sure you'll have yep. a big announcements. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're happy to finally be there in person. It'll be fun to see. Everyone. I agree. So switching over to your revenue model, how does Aloy make money? We are, so we're basically aligned with our clients where we are per, you know, kind of SaaS fee plus usage fee. So, so per, you can think of it sort of it's roughly per API call. It's not, it's not exactly that, but it's new applicants who are signing up. That's sort of a call to the Alloy API platform. That's where we make money. So the more applicants that you get in your platform, the more money you make, the more money we make. Got it. And how do you acquire your customers? What's your what's some of the best acquisition strategy for your company? You know, we've all we've been really just organic word of mouth. I mean, it's actually one of the things that we're while we're very grateful for. We're now trying to figure out like how do we you know what's gonna what's how do we scale this part of it because it has really been just a lot of inbound. The fintech community, as I think evidenced here, is very tight and has a few you know a few places I think that that have been successful for us in sort of in finding people, of course, groups like this, podcasts, Slack groups, events, of course, like like Money 2020. But it's just been kind of word of mouth and the fintech community has been really great to to work with. And so and, and we, we were also early, we had a few early angel investors, I think, who were fantastic, who were kind of, you know, operators themselves, for example. But yeah, customer referrals, that kind of thing has just been instrumental to our growth. I, I have to I guess I have to do my homework to figure out how we're going to do do better outbound and and scale the kind of the the go to market. Right. So talking of scale, how do you view like next growth areas or what are you targeting next? So we're really focused on, you know, like I, I mentioned we have these two two new products and they're still we have clients live with them. We have, you know, we're out kind of talking to people about them and selling them and all that kind of stuff, but we haven't quite you know, we're, we're, st- we're definitely still in the figure out the go-to-market phase. So I think this next year is about, it's kind of about two things. It's about figuring out how to sell these products, right? So what, what are the, what does the sales process look like? What does the, what materials do we need? What should pricing look like? It's all of those things. And then it's also sort of organizationally, how do we structure ourselves and how do we become a multi-product company? So that's, that's everything from org chart structure to things like branding and and messaging. One of the things I think a lot about is I, I, I actually am sort of, I disagree, I guess, in some ways with the way that we talk about these being three different products, because I actually really think that they're one product, which is this giant brain that lives inside of a bank or a fintech company and is the identity ledger or identity core. So I actually think of it as just one thing with different kind of modules. And so, so to me, there's just a lot, a lot of sort of organizational organizational challenges, I guess, and figuring out how we do that, right? Do we break things down by product or by use case? And so that, that's where I'm spending a lot of my energy. All right. Uh, so we're about four minutes for the end of our structured session. So I we did want to call out, Laura, uh, you know, you are our first woman founder. 
so I say that proudly and also with a tinge of sadness. Uh, we'd love <laughs> to kind of hear your unique experience as a founder and also as a female founder, if how that played out and any advice that you can share for aspiring founders uh, as well as uh, female founders specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I struggle with this question because I feel very fortunate in that I had a, I think there's a lot of female founders out there who have, who start at much more of a disadvantage than I do. So I had male co-founders, I'm white, I'm cisgendered. You know, I sort of, I, I, I think there are, if you look at kind of the data, especially on solo female founders or two female founders, for example, or women of color, the numbers are staggering about how much harder it is to raise money, for example. So it's not to say it's been super easy. And, and the first four years, like I mentioned, were rough and we almost, no one wanted to invest and I can't really blame them to some extent, but, but certainly, you know, that the, these other factors really matter. I have had definitely, you know, I'm, I'm frequently one of the only women in the room, whether that's meeting clients or talking to investors, it's, it's a little bit of a lonely experience. I think it's getting a little bit less lonely, but it, it can feel like that. And it can feel like a little bit of a boys club. I've really been I think in some ways I've, I've loved that there are a few groups of women in fintech. Some are informal, some are more formal that have been really wonderful to be a part of. And I think we actually benefit more. I mean, not like net net, but we, we, we get a lot out of those groups, I think, because there aren't many like it. And so you, you, women are generally in my experience in fintech willing and, and want to help each other out and kind of promote each other, which has been wonderful advice for founders you know, the, my biggest piece of advice and, and I, this, everyone, everyone's advice is going to come from some sort of scar they have. So take this with a grain of salt, but just don't run out of money. I think, especially in fintech, it's very expensive to build these products. Like I mentioned, doing things like your SOC 2, you know, audit alone are going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. And let's say you've only raised half a million bucks. That's like a, a significant amount of your, your runway chopped off. And so I, my advice tends to be raise more than you think you need and definitely just don't run out of money, do whatever you need to do. So for us, we needed to get through certain milestones to be able to raise more and more and to be successful over time. And so that meant kind of hanging on, but also we had to hang on until the timing was right. So there's also sort of this luck element, which I couldn't have predicted, but fortunately we were there when the timing was right. For female founders, I think a lot of it has to do with finding your network, find people who will promote you, men and women. And this is, this is, kind of the biggest thing I always take away from the sort of gendered founder conversations is it's great that women support other women. It's great that you asked me this question. It's, you know, wonderful for people to be talking about, but men actually need to be doing a whole lot more. It's only women who seem to be helping other women and talking about this and creating groups for us. Men need to be doing a lot more. They need to be asking, you know, trying to actively help other women in fintech. They need to be you know, allowing, helping them figure out their fundraise and investing in them. And often men are the ones who are being sexist. So it's also on men to, to kind of work on themselves. So I hope I'm not alienating anyone, anyone here, but that's, that's one of the, the pet peeves I have with this whole issue is I think we're also like women, women suffer from this, but their women are also the ones trying to rectify it. And that needs to change. Right. It's everybody's problem. Well, we have, we kind of, we are actually out of time, but one last question I'd like to ask to all the founders is if you were to be wildly successful in your endeavor, which is Aloy, if this were to be wildly successful, what would you have enabled the world to do or what's the legacy? 
Yeah, I love that question. I think, you know, if, if, if our mission is around or a vision is around creating a more dynamic and accessible financial industry, the point of that to me is that people around the country, around the world, so individuals or small businesses are able to get the financial services that best fit their needs. So whether that's that they are, you know, because of their profession, they require certain types of financial services that today are at, you know, a crazy high rate, or really they have to go into a bank branch to get, and so they don't do it. We want to make that easy, accessible, safe, seamless. And so we're, we're seeing, I'm, I'm excited about all the banking as a service stuff, because I think we're seeing, you know, what, what are being called niche banks, banking trends, but are sometimes huge populations of people like neobanks for African-Americans or for LGBTQ communities or for, you know, general contractors. Like there's a ton of use cases out there. And so I, I'm excited about that kind of stuff. And just making, making these financial services fairer, making them a lot less expensive. So I would like to see fees go down. I mean, I have a long wish list, but these are the these are the things I hope to see if we're successful, and I think if our peers in the kind of fintech infrastructure space are. Great, that's lovely. Thank you. So, with that, let's open it up to the audience. Now, if you are new, Deidre is already ahead of the game, so Deidre, I'll invite you, but just hold off your question. So, if you're new, there are two ways to join. So, Juhi and Harris, I see you guys just downloaded the app. You can either come on stage, and the way to do that is there is an icon, like a hand icon on the bottom right. If you click on that, Manisha and I were the moderators. We can bring you up on stage. Or the second option is you can text us your questions. So Harris, you've already sent me. You can send us a question through the back channel, and we'll read it for you. So with that, um, let's see. So Tammy and Deidre, if you like to join. In the meantime, Laura, I'll ask you a question. This is from Saeed. He's in fraud strategy. So his question is, he sent it to me on back channel. So his question is, what are your thoughts on preventing the synthetic identity problem, which is growing rapidly? That's his first question. And second is, how does your company validate that quality of recommended decisions remain best in class? Oh, great questions. And this is where I wish my co-founder were on because he knows so much about synthetic fraud now. So we are a platform that integrates a whole bunch of different data sources. And so what we've done is, especially with synthetic fraud and the kind of the rise over the last two years or so, is search for the best in class synthetic fraud kind of, you know, providers out there. So two that come to mind are Secure and Centilink, for example. And so we integrate those products. We work really closely to figure out best practices around those products when it comes to fighting synthetic fraud. So we work with our clients to figure out sort of what what rule thresholds are best, all that kind of stuff, which also addresses, I think, the second question, which is we there there is a there's some there's some parts of our product that have an inherent feedback loop, not sharing PII or anything, but some will we where where you will contribute, our clients will contribute back to some of the consortiums, the fraud consortiums in particular, and some where they don't. But in, in either case, we are very actively kind of holding our clients' hands and helping them understand how their fraud performance is for so so we'll go in and do tests for example we'll say okay hand us your last thousand applicants let us run a test to see what would have happened if we'd used this data source instead of this one and kind of be proactive with our our recommendations based on what we're seeing and and so there's a huge incentive there for our clients to work with us contribute fraud data back to us whether or not again whether or not it gets shared but but that helps them make better decisions and it helps us understand trends across our clients and and all sorts of stuff Great. Thank you. 
So let's move on to who we have on stage. First up, we have Tammy. If you'd like to introduce yourself and ask your question. Hi, Tammy Fleming, and I'm in financial services, focused on risk management, emerging tech innovation. And uh, Laura, I just want to say I am so excited for this call. I talked with Ambika earlier, and seriously, I was jumping up and down. I am a huge, I am a huge advocate for equity and inclusion. And just the fact that you're a woman founder, I, I mean, I'm, that is fantastic. So kudos to you. Thank you, um, and even, you know, some of the, the, some of your funding that you've gotten from your VC, you've got a couple women founded investors. I think Avid Ventures is women yep. founded. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, huge fans yeah. of theirs. Yeah. Yep. And you have a number of women on your, in your leadership. So kudos to you for that. Also, I just wanted to commend you. You were on the uh, CB Insights FinTech list to watch. So you're just, you're, you're amazing, regardless of (laughs) how you view yourself. You are amazing. So, um, yeah, no. So I, I want to go back to, and actually I have two questions. Um, and actually, Ambika, I, I want to go back to the one that you started talking about with um, synthetic fraud. And, you know, and, and Laura, you touched on the fact that the nature of your data, you know, is restricted. It can be PII. And it makes me think about the solar winds hack that went on, you know, a year ago back in December, which was, you know, one of the largest and most sophisticated attacks that we've ever seen. Yep. And when I think about cybersecurity, because cybersecurity is a data problem. Yeah. And, you know, malware attacks via mobile apps, huge. So yeah. my question to you, are you are you working with any partners? Because, you know, when I think about, you know, SaaS products, et cetera, you know, from a future perspective, people that are working on quantum computing, that's going to, you know, break encryption. Yeah. Are you doing any tactical planning um, to be ready for that? Or are you, do any of your partners, you know, are they engaged in that? Can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I'm certainly not the expert here. Our CTO has formed sort of, like, so so I, what I know is, is pretty high level, (laughs) as you can imagine. But our, it's something that we, we obviously sort of have to think about all the time in part because our, our, our audits that our clients do, so our clients or prospects. So we have sort of most of our clients are doing annual audits. Most of our prospects, at the point where they're considering buying us, are putting through us us through pretty rigorous due diligence. So we're going through these kind of vendor procurement management, you know, processes that are intense. And so we we already have had pretty good, you know, policies and procedures and all that kind of stuff. Um, We've now started forming a our own kind of security squad, I guess I should say. So that's been at the highest level, led by our, by our CTO, and we are thinking about all sorts of, or we have been thinking about all the all the things we have to consider, given that we have PII. So things like data retention, data encryption, which we're already very good at. We just don't store certain types of data. We encrypt a ton of data, and a lot of it is about keeping sort of up to snuff on the the latest and greatest. We also believe, you know, we're a cloud-based product and we believe that that can be one of the sort of safest ways for us to 
deploy with our clients. But it, in the financial services industry, that can be a tough, you know, there are many banks that have not figured out how to, how to move to the cloud yet. So I will say that's an area that I think we have to work with our clients on and help educate them and understand the, the kind of, you know, reluctance and also figure out, you know, if we're, we're in AWS, but figuring out what sorts of worth, what sorts of module or containers work for our clients in terms of how their, their data is stored. So that's a pretty active conversation that we have with them. And then, and then I think fundamentally, like our view is we don't share PII. So there are, I think there's a, there's a case you could make where we could make a zillion dollars as a company that is a network in and of itself, a data provider in and of itself. So we get the PII and then we share it with other people and people ask us all the time, like investors will ask us all the time, Hey, I want to, you know, if you KYC this person over here, why can't you just say that they've been KYC'd over there? And unfortunately, that's just not part of what we're able to do because we we take the sort of, you know, PII is sacred and we are, we're not in a place to share it. Okay, awesome. And then I think in your materials, when I was looking, I saw that part of your services, you're providing market share information or technology market share information and country-based analytics. So are you providing your customers geopolitical risk management reporting as part of your services? Can you just clarify? Yeah, I'm not even sure that where that's from, so I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. But we do do things like adverse media screening and, and stuff. Like, or, we, you know, we have some of our data providers doing that. So we, we, we enable that for our clients, negative news, that kind of thing. I'm not sure if that's the, the concern here, but that is, that's what we do. Great. Awesome. It's Tammy and I'm done. Thank you. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks, Tammy. Thank you for waiting, Deidre. Over to you for your questions. Thank you. I was, oh, so as you say, my name is Deirdre. I am a, I'm in UX research for a big bank. And you mentioned that you use a lot of data sources. And I'm curious, what is the most ingenious method you've seen that people have tried to use for authentication? <laughs> it doesn't have to have worked. Yeah. What have you seen people try? That's a good question. So there's one, there's one that I saw that I think was fascinating, but I just don't think, I don't think, I think adoption would be very tough because I think people, it makes people very uncomfortable, which is mm-hmm. being able to take a phone number and then. I think it was take the phone number and you can get social security number because I think you were able to get the the last four and then you can sort of work your way back into the rest using another tool. So I've seen that be, huh. I've seen that done. That was kind of fascinating. And I think a lot of the biometrics stuff is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I I love seeing a lot of the the kind of and I, I would say overall like I think banks are going to be reluctant to adopt it today for, for totally understandable reasons, but Mm -hmm. basically being able to say, you know, based on the way that you're typing, we've seen you before or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on some of those things. If we can Mm -hmm. figure out adoption, you know, security, all the, all the things that matter there. So we keep our eye on it. And actually Harris, who we mentioned earlier, who's um, on this call is the person who looks at all of that fun stuff and figures out whether or not it's cool, whether or not it's going to work and whether or not our clients will, will like it. So Mm -hmm. no pricking the finger for blood, huh? Not yet. Maybe that's you say something like that. Maybe that's next. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Deidre. Uh, Pranam, hi, welcome back. Good to have you here. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Ambika and Monisha. Great call as always. Laura, awesome product from the sounds of it. I lead identity for a bank. And uh, I was really curious. So, you know, the problem that you're looking to solve around building workflows and, you know, plugging in based data sources and, you know, orchestrating that entire identity verification is, is an important problem to solve. And, you know, one that we certainly deal with. Another one is for every data source or point solution or capability that I want in my stack, there are a million providers for that thing out there. You yeah. know, this market is hot. Yeah. Do you take a stance on the quality of some of these data sources, these capabilities? Like, will you be able to recommend yeah. to me that vendor A is better than vendor B in these scenarios based well, on sort of data that you have? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, that's sort of the reason that Alloy exists is because we believe that even if there, even if it's a clear winner today, right, I could show you yeah. three redundant data sources and there's one that's much better. Tomorrow, there's going to be five new ones and mm-hmm. someone else is going to be better. And so it's part of sort of the core reason we exist is we just think that this market is moving at a rapid pace. And then also you just shouldn't spend your time building new integrations into these. Like that's not your, your kind of precious developer hours shouldn't be spent there. So that's why we exist. And then either by talking to us, and I'm happy to talk offline about this, and actually I'm offering up Harris again who's on this call because he can he can tell you his opinions, which are, are going to be better than I mine, but both by talking to us, but also by actually using the product or doing a back test with us, you'll be able to see performance. And obviously there's a, there's a trade-off sometimes in performance between performance and cost or performance and and kind of like a user experience, right? You might have, there's, there's sort of different things that matter here, but we, we work with clients on those trade-offs and look at their data to, to see what's gonna be most effective. So short answer is we love doing tests and we can figure out pretty quickly what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that's awesome. It's related to my second question, which is sort of more of a business question. If I, you know, contract, like if I want, you know, synthetic identity capability or whatever, or I think you mentioned Socure Sentinel. If I work with Alloy, is my contract with Alloy or is it with Socure? Yeah, it's it's up to you. So you can okay. you can use our you can use us and then and then you know work with Socure through us. Or you can a lot of clients will have their own separate relationships because maybe they have a long-standing relationship with Socure, for example. And then you just integrate. I'm sorry, you just you just put your API keys into our dashboard, and so you don't need to. We've already done the integration, so it's just. It's kind of either or. Credit bureau data, for example, we don't resell today, so you do have to have a separate contract with them, yeah. and you know you'll you'll be you'll be you'll have your same sales rep at Experian you always had, for example. Okay, sounds good. The reason I thought that might be related was, you know, sometimes for all the right reasons, I think you mentioned like the intense procurement processes. Yeah. Um, like it, it may be hard for me to have like four different vendors doing back testing, and yep. I would really like for you to just tell me, you know, yep. that, that vendor A is better than vendor B based on our past experiences, and that would be a really valuable service as well. Email me, and we will we will uh, figure that out for you. We we have lots of opinions, I ton, tons of opinions. Okay, sounds good. I, I'll yeah, you offline. sounds good. Thank right. Thanks, Pranav. And over to the man of the hour, Harris. We've talked about you four times. You just downloaded the app. So welcome on stage and give us your introduction, Harris. Yeah, I feel a little bit a little bit nervous, but I'm on the product team at Alloy. And I actually had a, a question for Laura. With the, the new raise, typically 
you know, that means we're going to be growing at an even higher clip that we ha than we have. And I think we've grown 3x since I've since I've joined. And my question is sort of how how and have you thought about how we're going to maintain as good of a company culture as we cur currently have, given that a lot of times during high growth periods, companies sort of lose that sort of cultural identity and that and and things sort of, you know, you go through a lot more growing pains. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> well, earlier I was talking about how I think that, like, the, the thing I think we care most about is preserving culture and preserving speed, sort of like ability to do things. And so a lot of it is, I think, like, you know, driven by people like Tommy, our CEO, who just, you know, we're, we're just never, because of him, you're just never going to see a ton of bureaucracy and he just won't accept. So, you know, he, he wants to do, he's always going to be himself. And so for, for, to me, that's like a wonderful quality. And it means I think we just retain some of that both culturally and in terms of process and kind of developing squads. So like small, we, we believe that small groups of people can do big things and, and sometimes bigger things than large groups of people. So I think it's about figuring out where you can sort of get people into their kind of best, best work culturally. Man, it's been hard over the, I mean, you, you know, you started during the pandemic. It's been hard uh, doing all of all of our stuff over Zoom, I think it's been you know we've had some successful things about how how we sort of retain culture and all that stuff, and some unsuccessful. But I think having people meet one on one, talk to like spend quality time together, whether that's Zooms or we you know we do we're doing offsites, we're doing kind of retreat that type of stuff, has been sort of the best we can do. But I also think it's like paying a lot of attention to it. And so I mean, Kim leads people at Alloy they spend a ton of time trying to understand sort of like the pulse at Alloy at any given time. How are people feeling in any given week? What's the sentiment? How are they feeling about everything from stuff going on in the news to our compensation strategies to, you know, growth at Alloy to career development? And so not to say we get it perfect, but I think at the very least pay, paying attention is the only thing that's going to keep us honest. And so we have a team of people who are just, just dedicated to people at Alloy and, and sort of the culture. But I, I don't know. I think we got to figure out as we continue to grow. We have to be mindful. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Thanks, Harris. Uh, welcome, Anand. Over to you for your introduction and question. Yeah, hi. Nice conversation. I'm Anand, and I'm on the business side of things, mostly in uh, lending and cards across multiple organizations and currently in guaranteed rate. So quick question, uh, Laura, nice, um, nice to hear you speak about a lot of new things. One question I had, I think in line with what Pranav asked was, how do we quantify the incremental impact, say over Secure, or do you expect that we will be replacing Secure with Alloy at some point? Or, you know, does the, mm -hmm. does the benefits kind of, you know, justify that we can, we, we can work with both or do you think it could yeah. be? Yeah, both. So it's, it's, it's. Most of our question, most of our customers do work with both, or 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 lots of our customers, I say, work with both. We view them as very, very complementary to each other. So we think Secure is we, we work really closely with them. We talk to them every single week. Um, we think that Secure is fantastic, and then often our clients are sort of looking for something beyond that, where they say, "Hey, Secure is awesome, but I also think I want." XYZ type of data, or, you know, now I'm, I also pull in, you know, experience credit header data over here. Why don't I just match that? And so the sort of the need for a 
an orchestration layer arises, the more digital products you launch, the more volume you're doing that, the, the more kind of fraud you're seeing. And so we we just see this kind of need to, to even just to be able to control SoCure plus one other data source, we see that a ton because there's just a lot of orchestration involved if you're if you're really optimizing your workflows to get the best possible outcomes on customer conversion, fraud, and, and compliance. And I don't have the numbers in front of me. In fact, Harris might even know, but a ton of our clients use both. So they're certainly, we're, we're not competitive. We're, we're not redundant. So I, just, just to understand, so we would be able to test and see what the increment, incremental impact for us as a business is. Uh, yeah. When we combine the two, correct? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So, and in fact, you know, offline we can talk about how to do that, but it can literally be as simple as you send us a CSV file of of applicants you've had and decisions you've made, or or you can keep that. You know, and we we go we run them through, and and we work with you on what the data, what the various workflows could be. So let's use Secure plus three other things. Let's just see what the performance is. So we'd evaluate it together, and hand you back a, a file that says, "Here's who we would have approved. Here's who we would have." kicked out for fraud, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of the, that can be, you know, one day yeah. turnaround is really, really effective at figuring out what's working and what's not. Uh, great. I'll ping you separately and thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. And Andres, welcome back over to you for your question. Could you also give us your introduction before? Yeah. Thank you for inviting me up again. I, I can finally give a, a more detailed introduction. I uh, lead open banking at MX in Canada. And so my, folk, my question today is a Canadian focus. But I want to start with the answer that I, I typically receive from founders, especially in fintech infrastructure. And the answer is typically, usually, you know, we're really focused on the United States right now. That's where we're dedicating our time. There, the opportunity in the States is huge. And so that's where we're going to dedicate our time and resources for the foreseeable future. But in my mind, while the regulations may be somewhat different, the hurdle that you have to get over is somewhat the problems to be solved in Canada or in Europe, for that matter, are still really the same. And so I guess my question for you is, at what point does Alloy look at the uh, U.S. market and say, OK, we're doing well here, but we think that there's a problem that to be solved in other markets. And we want to see if it makes sense to venture into Latin America, to Europe. What what does it take? What do you think is missing right now? And do you see yourself uh, branching out sooner rather than later? And just for some context, I, I think of of Stripe, who very early on made a conscious effort to to break into international markets really early on, but we're just not seeing that right now. And while fintech is so hot and fintech infrastructure is so hot right now, you see so few founders speaking about other markets besides the U.S. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really good point. And, and I, I think we were guilty of that for a long time where we would say, you know, we, we have to focus, which is true. I mean, it's not, it's not an excuse, but we, we definitely had to focus, especially because we don't focus in terms of clients very much. You know, we, we serve early stage fintech companies and we serve top 20 banks. So we had to sort of do it all. But I think the market has changed where a lot of companies are becoming global companies. So the, I'd say like the number of requests we now get from clients saying, Hey, I'm entering XYZ country. Do you guys support there? And, and I'd say even, even large companies who are not clients of alloys 
and who always just built all their own stuff because they like to build their own stuff and they just won't even consider using a, a, a partner like us have come to us recently and said, Hey, actually going international and doing this in every single country I want to be in is super hard. Can you help? So for us, we're entirely client driven and we've been fortunate enough to sort of like go along with the ride. So for us, what it takes is a client saying, I'm going to help you get there. You may not have every single detail down on how, you know, whatever the equivalent of the bank secrecy act is in that country and how it, how your, your, your requirements will get meant or what are all the data sources? What are the most relevant fraud consortiums, but we'll help you kind of, we'll do that together. That's what we love. And so we've, we've actually been, we've been lucky to do that a little bit in Canada and we're starting to do that in, in a couple other markets. Canada has been great because it's, we, there's a lot of crossover between the U S data sources that we have in the Canadian ones. And so the use cases are very kind of fluid across borders in ways that have been really great for us. So it definitely takes like a, it takes intention and it takes willingness on the client side to kind of help there. Cause often they, they have those relationships, they know what's going on and we're just, you know, we're a small team still trying to figure it out, but that's, that that's actually going to, I think uh, going to be a big focus for us in the next year or two. And we we're becoming more dedicated to it. That is super exciting to hear. I think that's the most promising answer I've heard on Clubhouse <laughs> okay. in about nine months. Well, keep me, hold, keep me honest. So make sure that we're actually doing that in, <laughs> in six months or a year. I will. Thanks. Thanks, Andres. Bryce, welcome on stage. Please Hello. introduce yourself and what question do you have for Laura? Yeah, I'm Bryce Knowles. I'm at MX based out in Utah. We got some snow in the mountains today, so that's always wonderful. But uh, you mentioned uh, a little bit about going from an inbound to an outbound process. Love to hear a little bit more about that. Yes, and Bryce, I was actually at your summit oh, a hey. week or two ago. Yeah, yeah, it was that beautiful. Snowbird um, has gotten three feet of snow since oh my then, God. so we hit Incredible. the perfect window. It was so nice. So the honest answer is I am definitely not a professional when it comes to how to do these things. I, I've just, we've managed to hire some great people. So we have a wonderful marketing lead, a wonderful BDR manager, a wonderful sales leader who are all figuring this out together and, and sort of what outbound should look like. I think for us, it, my personal view on it is we have these great kind of referral networks built in this organic growth. And so it's really about sort of leveraging that a little bit more. And I think, and my point of view on marketing, I think broadly is I want to genuinely be as helpful as we can to our clients. And so putting out content that's useful to them, even if it has nothing to do with us. So I think thinking about what we're trying to get closer to our clients in terms of thinking about what are their challenges, whether or not they're alloy related. So if you, you know, thinking about clients who are trying to decide whether to get into buy now, pay later for as just one example, right? We want to sort of be there for those conversations for whatever they're building next. Because if they end up building buy now, pay later, we want them to use us as the kind of, you know, the identity platform behind it. So I think it's largely going to be sort of content and help driven. This is like, you can tell I'm not a marketer because I don't know how to talk about it, but it's really going to be around how we just are inserting ourselves as, as experts wherever we can be into our clients' and and hope that that meets their needs but i don't have any great tactics let me you know ping me in six months and we'll see if i if we've figured out how to do it i i will thank you for that appreciate it thanks bryce well laura i think there are a lot of people who are wanting to get in touch with you so what's the best way how do we get it how do they contact yeah uh, i'm laura at alloy.com 
And I'm also on Twitter, Laura Speakerman, and I will be at Money 2020 next week in Vegas for those of you who will be there. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, it was lovely having you today. Uh, so much engagement. So thank you for joining and for giving us one hour of your time. Thank you, guys. This was so much fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and um, talk to everyone here. Certainly. Manisha, go ahead. I was going to say thanks, Laura. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing your message, both the personal and uh, professional. Definitely a lot we've learned today. Thank you. Yeah, and look forward to meeting you in person next week. So yes, thank you. yes, I'll see you next week. Yes, and thank you for everyone who joined and for asking questions. Appreciate you coming back week after week. So we'll make this episode available on our website and any podcasting platform if you want to listen to it again. And next week, hopefully, we'll be live from uh, Money 2020. We're not sure who the guest will be yet. But yeah, talk to you next week, same time, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific.